0: So I took my jacket off in order to put on the mic, and it felt so good, I just thought, I'm going to leave it off. <laughs> so um, I'm thinking to myself, um, man, the spirit is moving through the valley. And then I realized no, it was just Iron Man. <laughs> we'll be looking. At um, Matthew, as we wrap up um, our journey through Matthew for this spring, we will return to it. Yes, I know. Um, Should God so lead and so orchestrate our circumstances, we will return to it next January. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 15. Matthew has been intent on us knowing that the long-promised, visible reign of Israel's covenant-making, covenant-keeping Creator God has now come visibly and in power in the person of Jesus Christ. And so several weeks ago, we watched as the King now actually begins arrives at Jerusalem and the crowds are ecstatic and the king begins to exercise or demonstrate his right and his authority to rule by cleansing the temple on the one hand and cursing of the fig tree on the other hand, which of course prompts this question, who do you think you are? By whose authority are you doing all of these things? And so that is the question before us, the question of authority and we have been learning that uh, the one, there was this one parable in response to that question about rightly responding. What does it look like to rightly respond to the authority of Jesus? And we learned in the next parable that rightly responding to the authority of Jesus is the fruit of rightly recognizing the authority of Jesus. And the reason that that is important is because rightly recognizing and rightly responding to the authority of Jesus is the foundation for the life we all dream about. It is the foundation for the the flourishing life for which we were created and into which we are invited to the very banqueting table of the King's Son's Wedding. those answers, as counterintuitive as it may feel to us, are offensive and threatening. Especially to those whose life depends upon being seen as authentically and genuinely right. And so who, in consequence of that, cannot bring themselves to recognize Jesus for who he is. Because in recognizing Jesus for who he is, we find that we must give up most of what we have accumulated and accomplished. And so, being captive to the spirit of the age, this leads them to challenge Jesus and any who would follow Jesus at every turn. These are challenges which continue to this day. Our passage is the first of four challenges to the person of Jesus, to the work of Jesus, the authority of Jesus that overflows in challenges to the followers of Jesus. These are challenges that on the surface emanate from the Pharisees, but in fact emanate from the spirit of the age. And these are challenges that confront us even today all around us and conflict us from within. For if he is who he says he is, That means that everything that I am naturally and instinctively inclined to call and celebrate as righteous, and good, and wise must be redefined, must be reordered, or must be replaced. This fact means that if we are rightly recognizing and rightly responding to the authority of Jesus... We will find ourselves the targets of our culture's passion to destroy Jesus. And that's hard. For we will find ourselves, and we will increasingly recognize ourselves, living as dual citizens. Dual citizens of two feuding kingdoms, each of which lay claim to our ultimate allegiance. And so we become both the sphere of and party to these dueling allegiances of our dual citizenship. Now, I know some of you saw the sermon title and you said, silly Dan, you misspelled it. I have not. Our children are dual citizens. That is to say, they hold full citizenship in both Japan and in the United States. And sometimes in class, when they're studying history, and they are studying the history of World War II, they find that they are at the crossroads of dueling visions of history as they come up on Pearl Harbor Day or the history of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We are dual citizens who often find ourselves caught in the middle of dueling kingdoms. Sometimes the duel happens within our own heart. And that is what is happening here as the Pharisees now come and challenge Jesus with this question about paying taxes to Caesar. So read with me. Matthew chapter 22 beginning with verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to him, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, And to God, the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. In modern parlance, boom! This is the word of God to us, his people, who find ourselves often navigating these exact kinds of challenges. That we may know his wisdom, that we may know his his courage and his might. So let us go to him in prayer. And so, Father, we do pray that you would strengthen us by this, your word. You would shape us by this, your word. You would guide us by this, your word. For this, your word, is our life and our joy and our hope. And so, Father, we need your spirit to do what you have said that your spirit will do. Teach us, remind us, strengthen us. We pray that you will do this because we pray as your children in Jesus. Amen. So every morning, um, I take the kids to um, drop mana off at school across the way, and then I take the boys down, um, is it 341, to Chickamauga to take them to Oakwood. And um, we always come to what a good friend of mine affectionately calls malfunction junction. Some of you who have driven down that way know the road I'm talking about. It really shouldn't be so complex. It really is just a T intersection. But somehow, we have managed to make it a really complicated intersection with cars going every which way. And so we find ourselves, there's this little portion of of road that if you're turning left, you you can only fit three cars. Unless, of course, you get caught behind a lawn business and then you can only fit one. And it's tricky. The angles of the road sometimes make it difficult to see who's coming from which direction. Sometimes signals are used. Sometimes they're not. public service announcement, please use signals. Because failure to use signals is a challenge to my sanctification. <laughs> it's hard. you got cars coming from the left. you got cars coming from the right. Some of them are going to hit you. Some of them aren't. Some of them are going to go that way. Some of them are going to go this way. And then there's the guy in front of you who's texting. And he has that one opening. And he doesn't go. And you have to wait another 15 minutes. But there's another interchange I wanted to tell you about. It's the MacArthur maze interchange in Oakland, California. Has anybody happened to have, ever cross that interchange? It's a convergence. Are you ready? It's a convergence just outside San Francisco, between San Francisco and Oakland. It's a convergence of four major interstates. Look it up. It's an, not now. Look it up, though. It's an amazing thing. It makes Spaghetti Junction look like a four-way stop. It's the largest interchange in the world. Four interstates intersecting and connecting, cars going every which way. With that in your mind, somebody describing it says, it looks like the architect was a three-year-old with a magic marker. With that image in your mind though, I want to help you to locate yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. Because we, as followers of Jesus Christ, have been set right in the middle of that interchange. That's where we live, in a tent, on the third lane Of a California freeway. In a tent, that is where we live. That is where we have been called. That is where we have been set. That is our calling. And so the question is this how do you survive living in a tent in the middle of a California freeway? How do you live faithfully? How do you, never mind, thrive and flourish? We often say that we are citizens of two feuding kingdoms, and that is true. But one of them has splintered itself into warring factions, which are unified on one point only, that Jesus must be destroyed. For Jesus is an unmitigated threat to their absolute rule And must be defeated. And until that happens, they are unified. If they are able to accomplish that, they will destroy each other. And so it is that we hold our citizenship in these two feuding kingdoms. Both of which lay claim to our absolute allegiance. And so we find ourselves caught in the battle between these kingdoms, we find ourselves taking on challenges from every which direction, everywhere we turn. And we find ourselves navigating those dueling allegiances even in our own hearts. Sometimes finding ourselves in circumstances and conversations that we don't know which end is up or which way is right. Our profession of faith, you see, puts us on a collision course with the spirit of our age. And that's what we see unfolding in our passage. Whether we collide with the spirit of our age at work, whether we collide with the spirit of our age at school, whether we collide with the spirit of our age as we watch television or listen to the news or read the newspapers and magazines, as we navigate relationships with our neighbors and coworkers and spouse and children and roommates, or even within our own souls as we navigated the conflicted feelings and tensions as we feel pulled this way and that way. Whichever way we turn, wherever we find ourselves running or attempting to run, we find ourselves on a collision course with the spirit of our age. In such moments, it is important for us that we have a clear and confident understanding of our dual citizenship and his responsibilities so that we may faithfully navigate the tensions involved. So look at our passage. Almost immediately, rightly recognizing and responding to Jesus is the key to building a, a home. We see at the end of chapter 21 and in chapter 22, indeed, it is the invitation by which we are welcomed into the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And so that sparks this great conspiracy between the Pharisees and the Herodians to entangle Jesus, to trap him, to begin undermining his popularity. It's interesting to note, though, that the Pharisees and the Herodians were not real good friends. They were united on one point only. And that point is, Jesus is dangerous. The Herodians thought the best way to survive the Roman occupation was to cooperate with the Romans. Appease them as much as you can, keep your head down, and make it through to the end. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were radically opposed to that philosophy. And they thought... The best way to to, um, survive the Roman occupation is to not give them a quarter, not give them an inch, but to remain absolutely faithful to the God of Israel, for he is our king. So the Pharisees would have it. But they were united in this, that if Jesus were allowed to be as popular as he is, then he will bring the wrath of Rome down upon Palestine. And all hopes, no matter what they are, will be destroyed. So he must be destroyed. And so they conspire. They conspire together in order to entangle Jesus. And so here's the test. They come, They are very good. They flatter him. Oh, you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion. You are not swayed by the looks on their faces. There's a much to be said about that flattery that um, I will pass over for the moment. Just to say that often we find ourselves saying things that mean more than we know because the fact is that Jesus is true and Jesus does teach the way of God truthfully. Indeed, he embodies it. But let us get into the trap. This is the first of four traps that Matthew records for us in which Jesus, they seek to ensnare and entangle and trap Jesus with regard to political allegiances, as in the case of our passage here, and then later religious allegiances, and then later in li- life and lifestyle commitments and allegiances, and then this whole thing of either or conundrums. Think, for example, here the, uh, the, the allegiances, whether to Rome or to the promise. And so they cast it in terms of this either or um, question. But think, this is not just something that happens here. It happens to us. Think, for example, about this question So, are you patriotic or are you for immigrant rights? Our culture says you can't be both. That's the narrative that is developing. And so we find ourselves often caught on the horns of this imagined imagined dilemma and we find ourselves paralyzed. Or what about this one in terms of religious allegiances? Do you believe in climate change or not? Believe it or not it's a religious question. Or how about this one? This is a good one. Are you young earth or are you smart? Are you a grace person or are you a law person? I know, I've gone to Medlin. Are you a freedom person or are you an obedience person? Are you for the peace of the church or are you for the purity of the church? Or think about something like, something like this in terms of lifestyle commitments and allegiances. Are you a homeschool person, a private school person, or a public school person? Or this one from several years ago Do you raise your children God's way or not? Mako and I read that book and we didn't like it, so I guess we're not raising our children God's way. I don't understand. Here's, here's one for you. Are you a saver or are you generous? Do you see how the spirit of our age seeks to trap us on the dilemmas? I see my brother shaking his head. Here's another one for you. In terms of the kinds of either or conundrums we find ourselves in. Are you a Black Lives Matter or are you a Blue Lives Matter? And we find ourselves accepting the terms of the dilemma and so being trapped and paralyzed. And that's exactly what's happening here. Tell us then, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The question, you see, is pitting the reign of Caesar against the reign of God because the language of lawfulness there is referring to the law of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, there's this indication that then an interpretation and extrapolation came to be understood that if you're really faithful to God, you don't pay taxes to a foreign occupier. You shall not let a foreigner reign over you, Deuteronomy chapter 17, we learn. And so they find themselves in this dilemma. They find themselves presenting Jesus with this dilemma. Well, is it lawful according to the law of Moses? Law of Moses. Everybody understands what it means to pay taxes to Caesar or not. So you understand the dilemma. If Jesus says, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar... You have to understand it's blasphemy. Whose likeness is on the coin? Caesar's. Whose inscription is on the coin? Caesar's. And what is the inscription? The divine, august Caesar. You see, the Jews were passionately opposed to any image of human being, never mind a human being claiming to be divine. In fact, some commentators wonder how it is that the Herodians and the Pharisees could produce such a coin within the walls of Jerusalem because carrying the image around with you was itself Considered blasphemous, according to some commentators, to carry in the image of a foreign God into the city of the living God. And so some commentators argue that Jesus says, Well, hand me that coin there. You know, the one that's required of you for the Roman tax? The one that one, that one that's right there in your pocket. Yeah, hand up to me. Oh, I'm sorry. You had that in your pocket in Jerusalem? Jesus is far too gracious to respond the way I do. The spirit of our age is always seeking to trap us. And if he says, of course, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then he is, then he is promoting insurrection an insurrection that occurred not unlike what occurred 20 years prior to this and the Great Maccabean Revolution that Rome put down um, with power and violence. And so if Jesus is going to say that, then he risks the full wrath of Rome. But Jesus, aware of their malice, sidesteps the trap altogether. How? Well, he refuses to grant the terms of their trap. The, in this case, the trap is premised on the reign of God and the reign of Caesar being roughly equivalent powers in competing. And he simply refuses to grant that assertion. that assumption. How? How in the world? Think about this now. How is it possible to avoid the sorts of traps that the spirit of our age seeks to get us into all the time? He avoids it by having a very clear and confident knowledge of who his father is. Now, This is not a clear and confident knowledge that is his by virtue of his being the second person of the Trinity. This is clear and confident knowledge that is his by virtue of knowing Scripture. Because this has been the drumbeat throughout the Old Testament. That the little old God of Israel, Yahweh, is the supreme world power. He trumps the power of Egypt. He trumps the power of Babylon. He trumps the power of Persia, our God. He is the world power. And Jesus knows very clearly who his father is. And so he knows very clearly who he is. And with that clear and confident understanding, He is able to escape the trap. So think about this. How is it that the trap failed? Well, the trap failed because the Pharisees and the Herodians themselves failed to account seriously for the word of God. They have failed to account seriously for what is revealed in the word. Namely, that the Lord is not a mere family God not a mere fashion statement, not a mere medallion on the back of the car or the chariot, as the case might be. They failed to account seriously for what is revealed in the word, namely that the living God, by whose word and wisdom all things were created, ordered, orchestrated, and directed reigns supreme today. This is exactly what was going on in the confrontation between Isaiah and Ahab. Do you remember that? He's paralyzed in fear as his enemies are arrayed against him. And Isaiah says, well, you do know who your God is, right? He is your rock. He is your shield. He is your defender. And Ahab, having been captivated by the spirit of the age, dismisses Isaiah with a wave of the hand saying... I get that, I understand your religious mumbo jumbo, but this is a real military and political dilemma that I'm facing here. And Isaiah says, I know, so let me ask you again, you do know who your God is, don't you? Jesus knows very well who his God is. You see, our culture's attacks on Jesus frequently fail because they simply fail to take seriously who he says he is. As C.S. Lewis suggests, when we take him seriously at his word, we are left with only three choices. He is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And so it is that we find ourselves falling prey to the traps because we fail to seriously account for who Jesus says he is. You see, this passage is not really about taxes. It's about faith commitments and faith allegiances. Superficially, of course, it's about paying taxes to Caesar. Superficially, of course, it's about obedience to governing authorities. But rather, it is about, do you, by faith, rightly recognize and so rightly respond to the reign of Jesus in your every circumstance. You see, the trap only works if God and Caesar are roughly two separate but roughly equivalent powers demanding their fair, balanced share of allegiance. But brothers and sisters, we in this country know that the spirit of our age, they're not interested in a share of power. The spirit of our age is interested in consuming every square inch of our hearts. Caesar demanded ultimate allegiance. And since the Jews' confession of faith is that their ultimate allegiance belonged to God alone, Jesus would have been trapped. How does he escape it? Notice what he says. Whose likeness and inscription is this? Well, it's Caesar's. And so he says, well, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Here's what he doesn't say. Whose likeness is imprinted upon you? Then render to him that which belongs to him. You see, what Jesus is saying is not that these are two equal powers. What Jesus is saying is that our God is the supreme God. And Caesar, who also bears the imprint of his likeness, is his instrument in his hand to do his bidding. So when we render to Caesar what is Caesar's, we're actually rendering To God, what is God's, that has been entrusted to Caesar for his work. This is the pattern of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 13. You see, what each man has is only his in a provisional sense. That is, all that a man possesses, he possesses on trust from the Lord for a certain time for a particular purpose. And that time and that purpose themselves are the Lord's alone to determine. And so, brothers and sisters, the money you have in your hand is God's money, regardless of whose image is imprinted upon it. It's God's money that has been designated, in the case of our the terms of our passage in front of us, it is God's money that has been designated by the image of Caesar for God's purposes, which he is accomplishing through Caesar, who is a mere appointee for God's purposes. We see Jesus functioning with the same pattern in his confrontation with Pilate. Do you remember what Pilate said? Pilate is the governor appointed by Caesar. And Pilate says, Do you not know that I have power to do with you what I will? And Jesus says, Oh, let me remind you, you have nothing that was not given to you. By which Pilate hears Jesus referring to Caesar. But Jesus is referring to his father. Because his father is the world's superpower. And so it is here, since all money is God's money, since governing authorities are God's appointed servants to accomplish God's purposes, we render to God what is God's. How does this play out? Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand something. We're faced at every moment, in 10,000 moments every day, with decisions that must be made. And at root, the decision is this. Who will we serve? To whom will we swear allegiance? Will we render unto God our reputation, for example, in our squabbles with family, neighbors, and enemies... Or will we follow the conventional wisdom of our age and carefully parse out who's to blame and for how much and demand proportional, appointment, uh, proportional payments? Or will we cede control of our careers, the places and directions and durations of our career development to the one who calls us and appoints us? Or will we frantically move from position to position, from place to place in an effort to get ourselves ahead? The root question is this, whose likeness do you bear? Whose therefore are you? To whom do you therefore owe your life in your 10,000 daily decisions? Or in our difficult relationships, because you see all of our relationships are built upon an array of faith decisions. Whose likeness is on your spouse? Whose likeness is on your roommate? Whose likeness is on your little brother? Whose likeness is on your big brother? Or your sister? Or your classmate? Or your neighbor? Or even your sworn enemy? Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us render to the one whose image is on them the honor he is due by honoring them. You see, at root, we must ask, who do we know our father to be by the arrival of Jesus? And who do we know Jesus, therefore, to be? You see, our answer to those questions will play out not by our words, but in the 10,000 daily decisions we make every day. And so it is that we honor him. And so, Father, we come to you and we ask.